Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, October the 17th, 2022, a Monday, usually a rather miserable day, but up here in San Francisco, it's a happy day because the Dodgers are out. Um, he hates the Dodgers up here in San Francisco, of course. Big money team, no spirit, no soul. <laughs> oh my God. Owned by a man called Todd Bowley, who um, <laughs> epitomizes all the absence of soul and everything else. Uh, here is a man, Todd Bowley, who's also invested <laughs> large amounts of money in English football. He's a man who believes in data, uh, according to the Daily Star, one of the more reliable news sources in England. Chelsea <laughs> fans who are expecting uh, Chelsea now to become like Moneyball. Lots of other talk about how data-led Todd Bowley would maximize youth talent at Stamford Bridge in Chelsea. Um, and Todd Bowley is not the only man who's been reading Moneyball, Michael Lewis's great book on um, metrics and baseball, which also got turned into a wonderful movie. My guest today on the show, Ryan O'Hanlon, is the author of a new book, Net Gains, perhaps uh, a wannabe, uh, a, a wannabe uh, Moneyball about English football or the beautiful game, the world's game. Uh, and uh, Ryan is joining us from, of all places, Los Angeles. I heard a bit of muttering in the background, Ryan. I assume you weren't so happy when the Dodgers lost. I live like, uh, I can hear the stadium at night. Um, or I There's guess never not. any noise. I've been down there. People oh, come on. They, about, they come in about not... the fifth inning and they leave in the sixth. No, that, that's every other LA team. The Dodgers have a good fan base. Let's, let's, uh. So what about this Bowley guy, Ryan? Is he uh, is he Mr. Data? Is he is it his your is it his wisdom that you are articulating in net games? Um, you know, I, not really. Um, I, I think a lot of the the wisdom that I'm articulating in the book is from people that are um, very clear about what they don't know. I guess. And I think the early <laughs> reports of Todd Bowley and some of the things he's said publicly uh, don't really suggest that much um, that he has that kind of mindset currently. So it's it's not quite about him, but it's about people maybe you could stereotype similarly to him, I guess. So here's the question. Uh, we're we're going to get into the value of net gain. Some people might think there is a lot. Some people might suggest otherwise. But the real question for you, Ryan, is the subtitle of the book is Inside the Beautiful Game's Analytics Revolution. If there is indeed what you call an analytics revolution in football, will it mm -hmm. remain the beautiful game? Isn't the whole point of the beautiful game is it, it can't be turned into a metric. It can't be turned into data. Uh, I think that that's a, that's a good question. I don't... Um... That that's a consistent, uh, I wouldn't say criticism, but pushback that I get. I actually don't think that, um, I don't think this kind of search to understand soccer better um, 
value it's happening on the field. I don't think it's at odds necessarily with um, the romantic nature of the sport. I think, I don't know if you watched Manchester City and play Liverpool yesterday. Um, I think Liverpool are one of the most entertaining soccer teams of all time. Um, they have a very deep connection with their fan base. And that is a team that is uh, built very, um, very aggressively using um, some more, I guess, let's call it evidence-based decision-making. So I, I don't think that those things are, um, those things can't exist together, but I do think um, it's a, it's something to think about because I don't think um, in the Moneyball revolution, let's say in baseball, I don't think that that was ever a question anyone really asked. And I think uh, a lot of people don't think the sports is fun to watch anymore as every at bat is now a home run. Uh, a well, certainly, uh, certainly the Oakland days aren't fun to watch, but that's another thing. And we'll, we'll move on to that. Actually, <laughs> um, let, Let's talk a little bit because everyone has very strong opinions on this, including myself, as you can probably guess. What exactly are you arguing? What are the limits? I, I'm assuming that you don't believe that everything can be turned into data when it comes to football. No, and I think that's a pretty heavy through line in the book that I think there's two two things happening here. I think every other sport um, has proven that there are, uh, even if you don't want to call it like analytics, that the way, the traditional ways of playing the game, of assessing players are not necessarily the best ways to do it. There are other ways to do it and frequently you know, you can use data as, let's just say you're using data as a record of what happened, let's say, because, you know, there's a famous Bill James quote, you know, the difference between a 300 hitter and a 275 hitter. That's a big difference in terms of who people think the best players are. It's also the difference, uh, the difference between those two players is one hit in two weeks. So the average person or any person can't, you can't, it's not a, it's not something that you can just pick on, up on by watching. So I think, um, I think it's, you know, there's the one side where soccer, football, whatever you like to call it, I think. Let's any, go up this show, we'll call it football. I think, I think it's okay to call it whatever you want. Calcio, um, for, you know, if that, that tickles your yeah, fancy. Yeah. Um, I think. Well, we're not going to call it soccer ball though, are we? I think soccer's fine. I think okay. that was a that was a name that was used early on in England as well, um, but didn't catch on for whatever reason. Um, so I think t the use of new ways of thinking of trying to use some things to quantify objective performance to to learn more about the sport and kind of how it works and what it means to say be a good midfielder. That's not happening to the degree that it's happening in other sports but the teams that are doing it are succeeding. But at the same time, measuring soccer in the same way baseball's measured is, is impossible, in my opinion. So what are the, 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 the strongest arguments in favor of this in the book? I mean, um, you, you mentioned Liverpool. Are they, um, are they leading? Are they pioneering what you call this analytics revolution? No, I would say the two pioneers are their own by this guy, Matthew Benham, who um, made his, he's compared to the, uh, the money in soccer. It's a very small fortune um, in sports betting. And he first bought a team in Denmark called FC Michelin. And then uh, 
bought Brentford, um, a, a small, relatively Brentford? small club. In, yeah, yeah, a relatively small club in London. And they are as committed to using data and objective um, metrics to determine their performance, to kind of weed out when they got lucky, to identify undervalued players and how to kind of understand if they're on the right track or not. And Michelin has went from kind of a nothing club in Denmark to they're frequently in the Champions League every year. Brentford was often the the biggest overachiever in terms of their wage bill in um, the championship in England, which is kind of the, you know, that's the mad dash to get promoted to the Premier League. Teams are spending, you know, uh, dangerous amounts of money for the health of the health of the clubs going forward. And then they eventually got promoted um, to the Premier League, stayed up last year and are right around mid-table this year. And the, the, these teams are doing kind of the most advanced, I guess, top-down analytical assessments of their teams and acquiring players and they've been they've been really successful and i think at the at the top end in terms of what you call the super clubs i guess i think liverpool have most um most bought into that and you know they've won the champions league uh won the premier league for the first time and uh made it to the final of every competition they were in last season so let's talk about um, the the Oakland A's because the Oakland A's pioneered this, but they are a catastrophe in the East Bay at the moment. I think they're moving mm-hmm. to. Well, there's lots of talk of them moving to Los Angeles. Billy Bean has disappeared. I saw online people were asking, "Does Billy Bean still exist? Does he have a job?" <laughs> um, he got involved in football, soccer, getting involved with a, a small Dutch club. Um, He's and- a He's a co-owner of a club, Toulouse, that just got promoted right. to the French So these are all, and he's division. somehow been involved with Barnsley Football Club. These are all, like Oakland like Oakland days, they're all small clubs. Mm-hmm. And whilst there may be some truth, that I mean, Den, everyone comes on this show, politics, culture, this and that, and they talk about the Danish model. But Dan, the <laughs> Danish model is, just, it may work in Denmark, but it doesn't work anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And the Danish club you mentioned may get in the Champions League, but they never achieve anything. The, the British club, the, the London club you talked about, Brentford, it's a remarkable story in its own right. But in two or three years, they'll probably be relegated. So the A's model is fine on a very low budget. It's fine to squeeze the most value when you don't have a lot of money, but it doesn't work at the high end. Disagree. I mean, the whole the whole story with the Red Sox is that uh, John Henry tried to hire Billy Bean away from the A's. Billy Bean said no. Then he brought in Theo Epstein, who's a very similar type and with a much bigger payroll, the Red Sox won. And then Theo Epstein also uh, was hired by the Chicago Cubs, and they also famously broke a curse. And I think with baseball, part of the reason the A's are struggling so much is because the Yankees and the Dodgers and even the Giants, they're teams with way more money and they are as committed to these ideas as the A's were. And when the A's, when all the other teams with way more money are doing what the A's are doing, um, you know, it doesn't work for the A's anymore. So I agree that like at its core, the most important thing is to have the best players and the way to get the best players is to pay them the most money basically. And in soccer, there's no salary cap. So, um, you know, that leads to where it leads, but that doesn't mean there's all kinds of, edges to be gleaned wherever you can find them. So whilst it's a team sport, uh, football is very much based on talent. 
There are so mm-hmm. many players um, whose whose talent is extremely surprising, whose careers don't make sense. How does metrics help with that? Is it designed to find the the hidden diamond um, where everybody else misses them? So much money is overspent on players. So much money is sloshing around the game. Where do you think the best value for net gains is? Yes. So um, the average club record transfer. So um, take a given club, find the player that they paid the highest transfer fee to acquire. Um, That player on average will only play uh, 50% of the available minutes while he's at the club, which, you know, from a pure investment perspective is pretty terrible because like the players can't help you do anything unless they're on the field. And if they're on the field for only half the time, you know, probably not worth um, the most money you've ever spent for a player. Um, So there's obviously still a ton of inefficiencies in the, in the transfer market. Honestly, I think, I, I think, and I've, a lot of people have said this to me, I think right now in terms of what these things are able to measure, I think the value for a lot of teams is more in the players it tells you not to sign rather than it being able to find you the next messy that no one else, no one else can see. And given how many, um, like I said, of these big money players just end up not playing at all. And that means that money is not going to other players that can make your team better into, you know, hiring front office people that can make your team better, raising salaries. Um, I think there's still, there's a ton of value in using some sort of metrics that can help you, you know, fight against the biases that maybe might be, might be created by the random nature of soccer and just by, you know, <laughs> the human brain. Um, well, it, it seems, it seems to me that you're making a broader argument about figuring out core value in, in your, in your piece, you, you talk about perhaps exaggerating the value of, of midfield players who often mm-hmm. go for the most amount of money. Is that one of the arguments in your book is that we don't, that, that metrics help analysts, managers, investors, owners of clubs understand that perhaps they overpay for certain players on the pitch, midfielders or attackers. Is that the argument? Yeah, I think so. Uh, at least in terms of transfer fees, I think it also ideally, right. Um, even though this is often not the case in baseball, ideally it also makes it so the players that are providing a lot of value, um, get more money, <laughs> but that, you know, um, it's frequently not what happens. I think that, you know, you take a team like Manchester United and we're talking about how it doesn't matter if you use analytics, um, the richest teams will always win. Well, Manchester United has been the richest team in England for, um, a decade and haven't come close to winning the premier league. And I think even, I think the use of data, maybe when you're recruiting players, right. I think if anything, it like, it forces you to have some sort of values, like you said, or you have to choose what metrics you're looking for. Right. So it almost like forces you into creating some kind of identity. And I think that's a thing that you've, you find with a lot of these teams, right? It's because soccer is so dynamic, right? You could watch a game if they wanted to, right? The ball could just sit at midfield and neither team could touch the ball. There's mechanisms in every other sport to prevent things like that from happening that force the games to take on 
a certain shape. With soccer, you sort of determine the shape of your game with the players you find, the opponent you take on, the coach you have. And I think a lot of these teams, what they do is they don't think that they have this all-in-one metric, right, that figures out who the best players are, like war would say in baseball, wins above replacement. But they have a way that they want to play that they think is effective. And then you can figure out who fits in that right way to play by using data r- rather than, you know, watching a hundred games yourself and trying to, you know, make sure your brain kind of picks all of the right inferences from watching all that, that tape. So I think, yeah, what you're saying, it kind of maybe helps you carve out a, an identity or what. Where's the, you where's, in your view, it is, where's the value? You believe that midfielders are overpriced, overrated. Where, where, where? Where are the clever investments if you were owning or managing a, a football club? Yeah, so I think the clever investments are one thing that is very clear. Teams can score a lot more goals from set pieces, um, dead balls, corner kicks, stuff like that, which I will admit does go against the premise of the beautiful game. I don't love watching corner kicks. but when I heard that- uh, I was watching a game of the weekend. I heard that the current metric is that 3% of corners result in goals. So, yes, which is very low. And I think teams can do a lot better in the teams that have so tried to. That, so, so you realize that and then you improve it, but it's hard to score from corners. Yes, but it's also it's also an area where you're basically, it's the only area in the game where you can actually sort of implement movements that you practice, right? Because everything else, they're kind of vague echoes of what you're doing in training, right? Like it's mostly these players thinking creatively on the fly. Um, and I think you can if you nail down these routines, I think plenty of teams have shown that you can score. Some have suggested upwards of what say a $90 million striker would score for your team. So I think there's that. And then also, I think there's just this idea of expected goals, um, which I don't know if you've heard of, but it's essentially, you know, every shot from an area on the field is is converted a certain amount of time based on historical data about where it's happening, the past that led to it. Obviously that's not true for every individual shot, but it's a general guideline. And one of the things that that showed is that, um, you know, the way the best strikers score is not by being the best at striking the ball. They're the guys that get into the areas and take the shots the most often. So I think there's a way to use that, um, you but everybody scout. knows that. I mean, that doesn't require... A, I don't a think so. I think you hear so much about finishing and confidence being important when it's just about, you know, what me- makes Messi great is that he's able to get seven shots off in a game, not that he's so good at curling the ball around a keeper. And I think that is very much against a sort of conventional wisdom that I hear. Um, we have a show coming about. up. Someone had, uh, a couple of guys have a new book out right yep. in time for the World Cup. Like yours, Messi, Messi versus Ronaldo, this... One rivalry, the era that mm-hmm. remade the world's game. What, what would data tell us about the debate about whether or not Messi or Ronaldo are better, more valuable players? Yeah, it's, it would tell you that it's not a debate at all, and it's Messi by a mile. Um, the way I would describe it is they're both roughly equally good goal scorers over their careers, but over that stretch, Messi is also the best creative player, um, the best dribbler, and sort of the best if we consider creativity in terms of just creating shots for his teammates, he's also the best passer in the movements that lead, that then create another pass. Or uh, <laughs> money ball to figure that one out. It's obvious. All you got to do is watch one game. 
Right. Uh, I agree, but there's a they wrote a book about it, and I think it's a very kind of prominent de debate in soccer culture. So despite that, what about, uh, and, and here's where like, here's where I think it's almost impossible to determine metrics with um, with you, you talked about coaches third, but coaches should always come first. They're, in England, they're called managers, not coaches. You mentioned Manchester United, the great Manchester United manager Alex Ferguson. I think it's probably certainly in English football, the greatest manager in history, won a ridiculous amount of trophies, spending the same mm -hmm. amount of money as the people spend today. But he wasn't a metrics guy. He terrified the players. He had a very good sense of team and spirit. What's, how, how would, uh, I mean, if you had a net gains team, you probably would never hire for Alex in the first place. Uh, I don't think that's quite quite true. Sorry about the dog in the background. Um, is the dog a Man United fan? No, he's a huge Liverpool fan, which is probably why he was barking. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a bit in the book about Sir Alex Ferguson. And I think one thing that has happened um, in soccer is that there's been a movement away from the manager structure. These um, In American sports, you know, there's the GM, um, which I you know, has kind of been deified in a, in a way in American sports, the Billy Bean type. And those people can kind of focus on long-term team building, on finding the players that maybe fit the manager's, um, what the manager wants in the player and lets the manager coach the team and not focus on scouting and on, you know, there's a frequent issue of coaches seeing one player play one good game against them and then wanting to sign that player and then ignoring the rest of the, the data. So I think there is a movement away from the manager structure, which I think teams that have done that have been more successful. Um, but like, I think like you're uh, Liverpool, <laughs> Manchester City, um, basically every team in Germany. Um, they've kind so of are let you the manager. Suggesting that Guardiola or Klopp doesn't have much influence in terms of the players they sign. They have a ton of influence, but um, so Jurgen Klopp famously wanted to sign this player called Julian Brandt who's from Germany, played for Borussia Dortmund. Um, and the front office analytics team convinced him, essentially, that they thought this player, um, one certain player, was a better fit. And that player was Mohamed Salah, who is, you know, probably the best attacker in the Premier League for the past decade. Um, and Klopp has openly talked about how much he um, values what the front office can do. And City Football Group have a ton of people above Guardiola, they still have a lot of influence for sure. Um, there's my dog in the background, but I think it's it's waning a lot, or not even waning, but allowing them to focus on what they're what they're best at. But I also think Ferguson was not against data at all. Famously, wanted to get rid of Yap Stam um, because his tackles and interceptions numbers had gone down, and that was actually a misreading of data on Ferguson's part. But he also he also knew that his team needed to be better later in games um, because the performance wasn't as good from data. And he would frequently practice how the team would play when they were losing late in the game based on the premise that it doesn't matter if we lose by two goals or three goals. Um, so we might as well attack more when we're down, when we're down one. And I think that that is kind of a sort of um, jibes with some of the thinking that I think I talk about in the book. What about player power itself? The game's changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. One of the other great managers these days is Carlo Ancelotti, who seems to be the opposite of, uh, of Alex Ferguson, much more willing to let players take control. And of course, I think he's won the Champions League more than any other 
manager. He won it with Real Madrid last year. Hasn't the structure of the game changed so that the power now lies not so much with the front office, but with the players themselves? And, and, and what do they think of all this data stuff? I think I think it's easy to oversell the power that players have in any sport, I think. But I think you're right that it is moving. I mean, for example, Kylian Mbappe, who's kind of viewed as sort of the heir or one of the heirs to the Messi-Ronaldo um, vacuum. And he just ran down his contract recently, which means he didn't, there was no transfer fee attached to him move, uh, potentially moving teams. So over the summer, he hit the open market, could have gone anywhere he wanted without that team having to pay a fee to sign him to a contract and signed a, I think it's $100 million a year he's getting from PSG. Um, so that's a win for him. But I also think one of the interesting things that happen, happens in, is happening in soccer is that players are almost more quick to move towards accepting some of this data. There's countless players in the book that I talk about. Raheem Sterling, starter for English national team. Kevin De Bruyne, um, star player for Man City. Cesc Fabregas, uh, star for Arsenal and Chelsea, who hired these analytics firms that could show the teams that this is why I'm super valuable to you and why you should pay me more money. And it worked for all three. So I actually think maybe against the, what's happened in some other sports, sports, some of the players, at least the ones that are very good, um, have really kind of uh, taken to this and used it to their advantage, which I think is a, a good thing for the sport. You've mentioned uh, Mohamed Salas of, uh, of, of Liverpool and Kevin De Bruyne of, of Manchester City. Famously, the best-known manager, at least, Jose uh, Mourinho, um, either sold or rejected them both when he was a manager at Chelsea in the pre-Bowley days. What does that yeah. tell us about charismatic, media-friendly managers like Mourinho? Do they simply not get it? Is he yesterday's man? I mean, it's very embarrassing to pass from both De Bruyne and Salas. Yeah, um, I think... Uh... Jose Mourinho's issue is that my dog's also not a big Jose Mourinho fan, as you can tell. Um, uh, I think Mourinho is, he runs afoul of what I think some data people in my book have run afoul of, where you, you become very convinced that your way of doing things is the right way of doing things. And you don't take into the fact that the game is dynamic and it changes based on what your opponents are doing. And it changes. You can only play a certain way because you have certain players. All players are different. The way they interact with each other, the creativity that happens between them on the field is different. And I think Mourinho, his specific, specific style worked very well in an era kind of coming out of the manager era, the Ferguson Wenger era. And in this era where teams started to want to play like Barcelona played and just have 70% of the ball and possess the ball. And his style was designed to essentially destroy that. Um, and it worked really well, um, both in league competition and cup competition, but the game has, has moved past that. And he, he hasn't really moved with the times. I think, I think he he's doing an okay job with Roma. Um, and I think he's a better fit for kind of teams lower down the table um, as you've suggested. Cause he just, he doesn't, if players like Salah and De Bruyne aren't fitting your plans, you just have the wrong plan. Nothing ever stands still, um, Ryan. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a, or well, we're doing a show next week with David Sachs. 
who believes you, you seem to believe that the future is digital, at least with football. Uh, he believes that the future is analog, how to create a more human world. What is the future then? Um, do you really expect there to be more and more of a, an analytics revolution in football? Uh, yeah, I think so. Be pushback? Are there going to be the analog crowd, the digital versus analog within each front office? Uh, I mean, that's definitely already happening. I mean, I, I'm a writer for ESPN. And if I, a lot of the response to my articles is you're a stupid American, keep data out of our sport. I'll get gifts of burning American flags, stuff like that. So there definitely is a, is who a kind sends, of, who sends you that? lots of, uh, let's say British people that follow me on Twitter is the sense that I get. Um, so uh which, uh which i know you're a liverpool fan yourself yeah it's it's sort of as i've written more and more about the sport that's it, kind of faded but i've 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 admired the team for a while um so i, I still it's still fair to call me a, a fan but i i think i don't know it just it strikes me i'm not like i like to keep a to-do list not on my phone you know i i, I hate social media it's less about digital. It's just, it's more to me about like learning more about how the sport works and figuring out ways to um, maybe different ways to approach it. Um, and I think like you're saying, it's what it appeals to me so much about the idea is that I think that there's a ton of ground to be made and a ton of um, just a ton more that can be done using this information but I don't think we're ever going to come close to knowing everything. And I think when people do think they're going to be close to knowing everything, it's going to change because the way the game is played changes over time. And the questions you're asking, which you're always doing, whether using data or not, are going to be the wrong questions um, eventually. So I think it's just a fascinating push and pull between the efficiency, fight for efficiency and the kind of sort of mystical nature of the sport. And I don't I don't actually think one side is going to definitively win. To definitively so, so why win is the game so mystical? Why is it, we might, maybe rather than calling it the beautiful game, we might call it the religious game and people are sending you burning American flags. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. The intensity, what is it about this game that brings out such remarkable intensity from Brazil to Argentina to London to Glasgow, not America, of course, but everywhere else? I think that there's there's the sort of cultural aspect of it in that it's accessible to anyone, right? Like anyone can play soccer. You need you just need an object, right? It doesn't even have to be round if 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 you don't have a round thing. There are barely any rules, and it's just very easy to kind of touch it, right, and be affected by it growing up. And then I think, you know, the institutional nature of the sport. There's unlike in the U.S. In the U.S., it's more like college sports. I, I feel like the sort of connections people feel to soccer teams because um, there's a college in, you know, or near every town. And with soccer, there's you have your local small club and then you have the bigger club that's nearby. And it's just a much bigger part of like daily life, I feel like. While, you know, in L.A., the Rams could be playing and I wouldn't know. You know what I mean? While the Dodgers, maybe that's a bigger part of daily life. I know you disagree with me. But so there's that aspect. And then it's also just... It's just a, such a weird sport. There's just a ball and it's there and you're just trying to kick it into the other goal and the other team's trying to prevent you. There's nothing else that's like, there's no shot clock. There's no um, downs. There's no outs. There's no, um, you know, umpire calling balls and strikes. So it's just this like thing and every game just takes on this 
sort of unpredictable shape. And I think that that, and then this kind of like rising anticipation combined with boredom of watching a game. And then this like insane payoff you get three or four times a game. It just creates this like kind of insatiable, like give and take that I don't think these other sports are really capable of creating. What are you saying in your book that hasn't been said? There's a number of other books been written about metrics and, and football. There's one, the numbers game, for example, written back in 2013. Are you are you revealing more data, more arguments, more sophisticated narrative, or is it more of a uh, a reported book? It's more of a re- reported book. Um, it's kind of you know writing about analytics. Um, I don't wish I don't love the word, frankly. You didn't go um, to Denmark, did you, Ryan, for this? No. Um, What's the I didn't. problem with the Danes? Why does everyone look up to them so much? They <laughs> but that's, this is... things. I mean, I don't think <laughs> anyone has any value in anything uh... that the Danes have ever done. <laughs> I'm not trying to defend, offend any of my potential Danish readers. So I'm going to take it. You've got take millions it of Danish readers, right? <laughs> uh, let's hope so. You know, um, they'll all buy. I, yeah, I'll, uh, you know, if you're going to Danish... have a Danish edition. Well, if there's any Danish publishers listening, which I doubt after what you just said, um, you know, shoot me an email after this and we'll figure that out. They'll send you a burn. Your English friends will send you a <laughs> burning Danish flag. Yeah, well, but like, so, you know, writing a book about this, I think it's it's possible for it to get incredibly dry, right? And get in the weeds about data collection. Mildly. Especially such yeah. an interesting game. Yeah. And I've been very, I was very cognizant about that writing the book. And I think I'm helped from the fact that I was, uh, you know, I played soccer at a relatively high level in the U.S. growing up, but I was an English major concentrated in creative writing. I wasn't a uh, data scientist, but I was very cognizant of that fact writing the book. So the book is essentially centered around each chapter is like a story of a single person or two people with kind of the data and the ideas weaved in and out. Um, so I'm hopeful that it's actually a pretty enjoyable read um, just from like a reading perspective when you're beyond just trying to whatever glean whatever information is in the book. They're going to make a movie out of it. Are you going to? Um, Let's hope so. Brad Pitt gonna pay, is Brad Pitt going to pay you? I'm I'm just the guy writing the book. You know, I'm not I'm not Billy Bean. Um, but if Brad Pitt is, wants is to play Bowie me. Is going to be in it? <laughs> Uh, he bought the team after the book was... Uh... He'll buy the book. He'll buy everything. He'll buy the publishing house. Finally, um, finally, uh, Todd, the, the World Cup's coming up. Uh-huh. I think most people would agree shouldn't be happening. Shouldn't be happening for many different reasons. Is yeah. the crisis, in, in your view, you're an ESPN writer as well. You don't just write about data. Do you think the crisis for football, soccer is coming? Not whether or not they do data but Mm -hmm. through politics and economics and through at a certain point, the sport has behaved so badly. I mean, it was bad enough that the World Cup was held in Russia last time, and that was pre-Ukraine. But is it possible that this Qatar World Cup will push it over the edge and so profoundly undermine the credibility and morality of the game that people will choose to watch baseball or American football or basketball or swimming or horse jumping or something? Mm, 
I don't know if the word unfortunately is the right adverb to use here, but I, I don't think that that will be the case. And I think a lot of it is for that passionate rant. I just went on about why people feel so connected to soccer. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I, I think it's the soccer itself, right? The ball, the game, that's not FIFA. That's not, you know, using slave labor to, labor to build your stadiums, giving bribes to people to get the tournament in your country. Um, you know, that's not what soccer is. That has nothing to do with it, right? That That's not the sport and that's not why people love it. But so many people love it that that is why it's also being co-opted by these forces. And I do think, you know, you saw, I don't know if you ever talked about this on your show, the kind of Super League attempt last yeah, year. Yeah, we, we, uh, we haven't talked about it on the show, but I know about it. I think that was, it was That's not already a reality though, isn't it? I mean, the top teams. I mean, basically the Premier, the Premier League, the Premier League is basically the Super League already in terms of, of, uh, revenues and the way revenues are going. But I think, yeah, I think that that, that was just a brief reprieve. I think it's going to happen again. And I just, you know, I don't think there's multiple teams that are owned by nation states at this point. And I just, I fail to, even if you want to remove the nation, what those nation states are doing, I fail to understand yeah, how they're nations, bad nation states. They're yes, South yes, Arabia, I agree. You know, I they're agree. Qatar, they're the, the uh, yes. United Arab Emirates. Unfortunately, it seems like every aspect of culture is being bought up in some ways by, by that, though. So, um, yeah, I think that there is some reckoning that will happen, but not in terms of, not because of who soccer is in bed with, but because of those people controlling the sport and they're having to be a breaking point um, because of what that means for the finances. Well, we shall see Ryan O'Hanlon, O'Hanlon, Net Gains, Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. It's just out. It's an interesting book making a controversial thesis, (laughs) which in some ways I think is credible, although some people will strongly disagree, especially English football fans who um, are on the rampage against Ryan O'Hanlon. Congratulations, Ryan, on the book. What else are you reading in addition to uh, Billy Bean? Yeah, I try to read uh, things that are not uh, related to what I What's write about. What's your favorite football book? Ooh, favorite football book? Um, it's probably The Italian Job, uh, which is by one of my new now colleagues, Gab Marcotti. He wrote it with Gianluca Vialli, who... Uh, Italian player and manager who briefly managed Chelsea and played for Chelsea in England. So it's kind of this philosophy book about how England and Italy view the sport in very different ways and kind of what that means about the world. And I, I think it's uh, it's not like recognized, I think, in the same at the Didn't same they level. Didn't make a of... film, The Italian Job? <laughs> yeah. I believe this. Well, I guess there was what it was. I think Steve McQueen is the first Italian job. Um, and then there was this book and then there was the Italian job movie. So it's, it's number two. Mm, actually, that was an original Italian. That's job. what I, that, that's that what I mean. That was first. Michael Caine. Uh, yep. I'll have to get Gabriel. Mac- Can you introduce me? I'll get him on the show. Talk about the Italian job. For sure. He'd love that. Okay, Ryan. Well, congratulations. And who do you want to win the World Cup? Not America, I hope. <laughs> Let's say Denmark. How about that? 